Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 301. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Thank you to Sunset Lake CBD for sponsoring this week's episode. Use promo code CHAT for 20% off your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned small business that shifts craft CBD products directly from their farm outside of Burlington, Vermont to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has something for everyone. They offer tinctures, edibles, salves, and coffee designed to help with sleep, stress, and sore muscles. Sunset Lake CBD customers support regenerative agriculture that preserves the health of the land and creates meaningful employment in the community. Farm workers are paid a living wage and employees own the majority of the company. Remember, use promo code CHAT to get 20% off your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com. Hey everyone, it's me, Laura Reagan. Just wanted to make sure that you know about what I've got going on this summer. I don't think I've really talked about it much here, which is silly, but in case you didn't hear, I did start a second podcast called Trauma Chat which is really for anyone who wants to understand what trauma is and how it shows up in our lives. As you've heard me say, if you've listened to this show, I've mentioned a million times that people tend to think that trauma is something that happens to someone else, something horrific and unthinkable, unspeakable. And that is true. Trauma is that. But it's also experiences that are very commonly shared among many of us, most of us. On Trauma Chat, I break down what trauma is in hopefully understandable language that's not stigmatizing. I know I couldn't have possibly captured every thought there is about trauma and every aspect of trauma and how it shows up, but I hope that trauma chat will be helpful to people who really don't understand what trauma is and maybe wondering, do I have trauma, you know, or wanting to better understand what someone they care about is going through. And most importantly, how to get help 
if you have experienced trauma, what to look for, how to describe your experiences or how to find the words that, that name what you've been through so that you can then connect with whatever type of resource support, whether it's therapy or a podcast that you'd like to listen to, to learn more about it or an article, another website. This is my hope in creating Trauma Chat. And the second part of that is the new Trauma Therapist Network community that I'm creating. It's unbelievable to say this because I've been laboring behind the scenes to bring this to you for a long time. Starting in around 2018 is when I first had the idea and then the process of getting from there to here has been slow and with many twists and turns, but I'm creating a community for people who have experienced trauma to find help for trauma therapists to find other trauma therapists to network with and refer to and gather and collaborate and share ideas and hopefully come together in person in in gatherings that I don't know if they'll be able to happen in 2021, but maybe by 2022, we can have in-person gatherings of trauma therapists to provide support to one another and combat the isolation of trauma work. Even if you work in a large agency or group practice, trauma work is so isolating. It's just part of the nature of it. And connecting with other people who get it is so valuable. The participants in my trauma therapist consult groups share how useful they find them to be because we're in our offices doing our work and then we go home and it can be really hard to receive the same kind of support that you give to your clients. So I hope that Trauma Therapist Network will be a useful resource for you, whether you are someone who's trying to find more information about trauma or if you are a trauma therapist yourself. To learn more, please go to traumatherapistnetwork.com. The website is not live yet as of June 28th when I'm recording this, but it will be live by August 1st if all goes well. And hopefully there may be even a soft launch before that, a beta version. So please go to traumatherapistnetwork.com where you can find a free download and sign up to be notified as soon as it officially goes live. Whether you are a therapist or just someone who wants to learn more about trauma, there's a download there for you, <laughs> different ones for each group. And I hope that this resource that I've really created from the heart will bring healing to more people. I really want people who have experienced trauma to be able to find the right kind of support. And that's why I created the Trauma Therapist Network. I hope you will join me there. Like I said, you can get more information by going to www.traumatherapistnetwork.com where you can sign up to be notified as soon as the official website goes live, which will be in August of 2021. If you're hearing this after August 2021, go there and hopefully you will find the site and you'll see everything that it has to offer. I cannot wait. This is such a labor of love, something that I've really poured my heart into and I'm just so excited for you to see it. Thank you so much for your support. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. Today is an opportunity to listen to a wonderful past episode, actually two past episodes put together for today's replay episode as I'm getting caught up 
Well, I'm recovered, I believe, <laughs> from COVID, but I'm still way behind. So I'm getting caught up and bringing you a few replay episodes in between. Today, you're going to be hearing my two interviews, part one and part two with Dr. Janet Courtney. In our part one, we talked about her work using expressive arts and play with traumatized children and their families. And in part two, she talked about her specialization in infant mental health. So many of you have asked me for more content about working with children And I hope that you will find this interesting and informative. I just loved talking with her. I'll be back with you live soon. And in the meantime, enjoy this replay. Thank you so much for listening to Therapy Chat. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. And today I'm very curious and excited to be bringing you an interview with Dr. Janet Courtney, Janet, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Laura, thank you so much for the invitation. I've been really looking forward to it. Oh, me too. I can't wait to dive in because most recently, you're the author of the book Healing Child and Family Trauma Through Expressive and Play Therapies, which the title right away just jumped out at me. And I know my audience has really been asking to learn more about children and children's mental health. So I think that this is going to be fascinating. But before we even dive into that, let's just start off by you telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your work. Okay. Well, I identify as a play therapist. And I'm also, uh, my background is in social work. So I have a BSW and MSW, and my doctorate is in social work as well, my PhD. And I had, I've been in private practice for a lot of years, beginning actually back in 1989, working with children and families before that, working with adults in mental health and working with adoption and foster care. And then, you know, just kind of focusing on maybe what I call a smorgasbord of different areas of problem areas and diagnoses, working with with children, especially in families and adolescents as well. So, you know, then, you know, during my private practice years, I decided I wanted to go back to school and further my education. And that's when I wanted to do some research in the area of play therapy. And then also, I was very curious about a topic called, well, the topic of touch. And this goes back to a mentor I worked with. Her name is Dr. Viola Brody. And I may talk a a little bit more about her during our interview further, but she developed a technique called developmental play therapy. And that is very central to the work that I then springboard to create my own model of therapy called uh, first play therapy. So now through the years, I currently do a lot of writing. I do a lot of training and I um, enjoy my life in South Florida. And I have grandkids that I enjoy being with and a wonderful husband. And I, um, anyway, so What else would you like to to know? (laughs) Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, I'm so curious about so far what you've already talked about. I mean, I'm just so interested in even the, the subtitle of your book, 
well, I don't know if it's technically a subtitle, but it says art, nature, storytelling, body, mindfulness. And then you also just mentioned touch and therapy, which is, you know, in some ways, some people may see it as kind of controversial, but of course, touch is such a basic human need. So I hope we can get into that a little bit. And when we talk more about your first play therapy method. Mm -hmm. So right now in this time we're living through, as we record this, it's September 2020, you know, in the United States, we've had this pandemic that's been impacting all of us for about six months, in some places longer, I think on the West Coast, and it may have been impacting people even before March. But a lot of what I'm hearing is about how families are impacted, you know, not just by the physical health effects of coronavirus, but the the mental health impact of this pandemic. And, you know, it's impacting families, but it's impacting the parents and the children pretty significantly, I feel. You absolutely. And what what we understand is, is that children are highly sensitive to the how their parents are feeling. So children are being impacted by this. So I'm hearing that there's a lot more anxiety, especially anxiety, some depression with children. Parents have actually called me and said, well, you know, my child, who was a very good sleeper, I never had a problem with her sleeping. Now she is not wanting to go to sleep. She's wanting to come to the room and, and, you know, be with me and I can't get her to, you know, lie down. And, you know, what do I need to do about that? So, but then the other hand, like I was saying, children are very sensitive to how the parents are feeling. So if the parents are going through a lot of stress right now, maybe they've lost their jobs, maybe financially they're, you know, strapped. Some families I know are, are you know, kind of on the cusp or of being evicted. Mm-hmm. And the, the children absolutely look to the parents for the cues and so if they, you know, what we call cues of safety or cues of, you know what, it's everything's okay, mom, mm-hmm. mom and dad have it under control. But if they see that mom is, you know, lost her job, or dad has lost their job, and that they are searching, you know, for to find a new job, then a child, you know, even if you don't say to a child, oh, dad is really worried about this. There is a saying that if you want to know what's going on in the family, just ask the children. (laughs) So true. Absolutely. Because they absolutely can feel it. I mean, even if the parents don't say I'm angry or I'm upset or I'm scared, a parent could walk in the room and a child could start feeling this pit in their stomach. And maybe, but they don't consciously know that this pit in my stomach, this anxiety that I'm feeling is related to the parent. They just know that now I feel scared or now I have anxiety and the parent may say, well, what's the matter? What, what are you feeling? And usually what you'll get out of a child is I don't know because children live in their bodies. You know, they live in the right brain. Mostly they're not necessarily connecting to the right brain, to the left brain of, you know, this is really what's going on. I'm scared because mom's scared or I'm anxious because dad is anxious, but they just know that they feel that way. So it's hard for them to Express. And then, of course, parents might not have the awareness that 
it's like, oh, my daughter is going through this anxiety right now, and I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, you know, then I used to, to work in uh, foster care and adoption, but we had a diagnosis for, for children that were pretty, you know, angry, and maybe they were in foster care, and we would say, darn mad for good reason. So we could say, you know, darn anxious for good reason. But sometimes, again, the parent might not connect that is related to what the, what the parent is feeling. So, you know, it's that, those mirror neurons, you know, mm-hmm. that the child feels and picks up on what is being experienced by the parent. And we even know for those mirror, they're censoring mirror neurons too, by the way. So if a child watches someone else touching somebody else, that child will experience that touch as if it was happening for themselves. Whoa. Yeah, it's really powerful. So anyway, the mirror neurons and that co, you know, the regulation. So if the parent is not regulated, it's hard for the child to regulate. So once the parent is regulated for themselves and the child can, can better regulate for them themselves. Anyway, back to the COVID and, you know, what we're going through right now is children are being impacted by it. But we, you know, I saw this comic, uh, my sister is a uh, a school teacher and she sent me this, this comic. And so the, the parents were saying to the child, okay, well, they're saying it's time for you to go back to school. And so, you know, the child's like looking at the parent with this like really worried face. And they say to the parent, they said, well, when do you go back to work? And the parent said, oh, when, when it's safe, I can go back to work. <laughs> right. So it's like, OK, it's safe to go to school, but it's not safe to you for you to ter- return to, to, uh, to work, you know. So here we have this paradox, you know, and of course, there's a lot of anxiety for, for children now having to, you know, there's some children actually going back to school and some are, are having the experience of doing the telehealth as well, or the tele, I say the telehealth, but I mean school online, and that <laughs> yeah. opens up a whole new avenue of the children having to listen live to the teachers in the classroom and then they're not hearing them, you know, so there's just so much pressure, you know, on the parents now, and they're wearing so many different hats, and the children are, are, are having to learn new things, and experience new things in life, and be exposed to things that they've, you know, for all of us that we've never, ever had to go through before. So true. And I mean, even as I'm listening to you talk, I'm just thinking so many different aspects of what what you're talking about like you know that comic that you mentioned is a good example of how we can understand with our left brains like that doesn't make sense if the child is is safe to go to school but the parent isn't safe to go back to work that doesn't make sense but children know when it's like they know with their bodies that the parents feeling this is not right, but they're saying it's okay. You know what I mean? And that incongruence can be so distressing for the nervous system because the child looks to the parent for comfort, reassurance, like, am I safe? And if the parent says yes, but their body is saying no, you know what I mean? Or there's the child senses that the parent doesn't even feel safe, even without the words. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not what you say to me. It's, you know, how you're saying it. You know, children are, you know, I, I, I say the superpower of kids is their ability to, especially infants, to use their their body language to talk. But they're also, uh, I was watching some research about this, that they're really attuned to the body language of the adults around them. And they pick up on the cues of the body language and also the tone of how the parent is talking to them and, and what they're saying. But they also are so aware. I mean, everything is, this, talk about subliminal messaging, you know, we're, we, a lot of the meta communication that we understand, I mean, we pick it up as, as infants, we pick it up as, as children. And it's, you know, the children are feeling that in their bodies. And again, like you were talking about the incongruencies now that they're experiencing and that are being said to them. And of course, all of us now are hearing a lot of incongruencies in the media of what to believe and what to understand about what we're going through right now. So it's, you know, very, very trying time. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, and I do want to say just, just to be really clear about this for everyone who's listening that, I mean, we know the parents are doing the best they can, the kids are doing the best they can, the teachers are doing the best they can. Everybody is in a situation that nobody wants to be this way. And it's because of what's happening. It's because of the pandemic. But, you know, I think the point, the purpose of our conversation is to help everyone who's listening to understand in a deeper way what, how all of this is impacting all of us, including children and families, and, but not to be putting fingers or anything like that. And I certainly don't think that you we're saying that, but I just feel like it's important because I feel what I see in our collective, in our culture right now is so much finger pointing about this. The schools are rushing to reopen. The parents do have to work. They need the kids to be in school. The kids need to be learning, but also the kids need to be safe and, you know, not just physically safe from getting COVID and exposing their families to COVID, but emotionally safe. It's just like, I, <laughs> The word unprecedented keeps being thrown around. And I really think that we haven't had a challenge like this. It's just so intense and really like there's just no answer that's going to resolve, make everything work out the way we want it to. You know, it's just it's a really tough time. Yeah, and I, you, of course, you bring up a really good point is that we all are trying to do the best we can under the, the circumstances. And, you know, but there are things that parents can do to help their, their children to calm and relax and, and be able to, you know, and, and I think a lot of it comes back to if the parent can help themselves for self-care, if they can help themselves find ways to you know, come back to themselves. That's what I kind of call it. And once they're able to come back to themselves and, and get themselves in a good place, then they're able to be with that, that child. And it comes back to the, the concept again of touch. And, you know, I talk about touch. I'm talking about nurturing. I'm talking about caring, caring touch and respectful touch. But it's, we do know that if a parent can provide good caring touch to a, a child through like a hug, that it releases those positive hormones in the body. The, the, the oxytocin, the, the serotonin can be released. But what I want to say, though, is 
for that to happen, the caveat <laughs> is that the touch for the oxytocin to be released, the touch has to happen for at least 30 seconds in mm. order for that to be released. And again, the caveat uh, the other one is that the parent has to be regulated and calm before they provide that that good caring touch to the child. So if the parent's anxious and obviously if the child's upset and they're going to try to give them a hug, it's not going to work because the child's just going to, again, feel the anxiety of the parent. So as practitioners, we can help the parents find ways through mindfulness techniques to be able to, to calm. And it doesn't take long. I mean, five minutes, three minutes, one minute of, of mindful type of awareness of bringing my attention back to my body and, you know, and just focusing in on that breath. And then, you know, teaching that to the parent before they give that interact with their child, you know, but if the parent's upset and they're anxious, then it, the child will feel that. Yeah, so true. And I, I want to go back to something that when you were first talking, something that came to mind for me was you mentioned how the, let's say the parent lost their job and the child knows the parent is looking for a job and they get a pit in their stomach and they feel like, I'm scared. And the parent notices and says, what's wrong? And the kid says, I don't know. So that's, that's one way it can go. And another way is I'm thinking with younger kids, they don't necessarily really know what a job is. They don't necessarily really understand that the parent lost their job, but they know something's wrong and they can feel it in their bodies. And then they don't, they may feel the pit in their stomach, but they may not be able to express even an I don't know, or the parent may not be able to pick up that something's wrong. But can you talk about how, I mean, I think, I hope most of us who work with children who've experienced trauma will, will know, but can you talk about how kids show their reactions to traumatic situations in ways that aren't really verbal? Right. And children experience and express depression express anger and anxiety very different than adults can. So for children that are, you know, angry, well, you know, a lot of times that maybe it will come out and be expressed as, as anger. Mm-hmm. For children that are depressed, sometimes it may come out as, as, as anger. You know, you might not necessarily see a child down or, you know, being de- look like we could typically think someone would be depressed that they're, you know, they're, they're down and they're not saying anything. And, you know, maybe they're crying, but maybe they, some of the behaviors are off. Some of the behaviors could be, let's say that the child, I mean, I'm thinking about a young school age child, and I know you were talking about the younger children, mm-hmm. but sometimes children that are depressed, if maybe the parent says, okay, you know, you have to pick up your toys or you have to do your, your schoolwork now, but maybe there would be some type of resistance to that with the parent. Maybe they're going to ignore them. They're going to not, you know, they might say no, or they, you know, so they have some conflict that is starting to happen between the parent and child. And oftentimes it's when the child is feeling not connected to the parent where, you know, I'd always say that connection builds cooperation, but that can show, show up as 
being depressed or, you know, some of the other things that are, are going on with them that we just have to, we have to be good. You know, I teach it when I work with parents, I talk to them that we have to really be good at learning how to read the child's nonverbal behaviors. That it's a, it is a language. It really is, especially for the young children, the infants or the toddlers or the, you know, children zero to three age, teaching parents how to pick up on the cues of what that child, that what that infant is trying to say to them, because a lot of times they don't have the words to express how they're feeling. They can't say no, they can't say I don't like this, don't do that, or yes, even. So we have to look at the body language, what is they're reading the face. And some parents um, come naturally uh, to be able to, to do that. But some parents, maybe they had a lot of trauma themselves. Maybe they didn't have um, a secure attachment relationship or someone who provided good experiences and those first three years of life, which we know is so vital and so important. Uh, So if they don't have that internal working implicit memory of it, it's hard for them to give that. And then at the same time, it's hard for them to recognize it if it wasn't given to them. Yeah. So it comes naturally, but that comes naturally the way they learned it or the way that was given to them or the way that they experienced it as a, as an infant and as a child, it goes hand in hand that there's no way to separate it. Yes, absolutely. So it comes naturally if they received what they needed when they were a child, but if they didn't, it doesn't come naturally because they didn't get what they naturally needed to. Right. Well, I'm also thinking about how children with anxiety often, I think about like, not just with children with anxiety, but traumatized children. And this collective experience of living through the pandemic, I think is a collective trauma for all of us, maybe can be less traumatic for the children whose parents are able to help them stay regulated, you know, who are able to help them feel safe and secure that may, they may seem to be more resilient in getting through it. But I think to me, the the answer to why some people are more resilient is if they have a more secure attachment. That's my, my theory. Um, (laughs) But, you know, children with anxiety or reacting to trauma with an anxiety type response, oftentimes they might be like running around screaming, you know, and it might just look like they're being wild, but really they're showing that something's off for them, you know, and I think, and then the parent may just react with wanting them to be quiet or trying to corral them and get them to be still and do what, like the virtual learning, what they are supposed to be doing during that time. So also for the parents who are working at home so they can work. Exactly. Right. And as you're, you're talking about this, I, my mind kind of flashed on one of the, the chapters that I wrote in the book is about nature and the importance of, of nature to our m- mental health. But I really believe that, that during this time, you know, thinking of how parents can help their, their children, how practitioners can also guide parents to help their children is if we can have access, if parents can get outdoors and if they have a park they can go to or, you know, a backyard 
or, you know, just anywhere because nature we know really is restorative. And even in therapy, when I was working with children and maybe the child was dysregulated in, in the office, I would say, you know what, let's just, just go outside for, for, you know, just for a few minutes. And, you know, I had a private area where we could go and, and just get some, you know, fresh air and just, let's just walk for a few minutes. And I tell you what, I, it totally shifts the, the, the perspective, you know, it totally shifts. And I I'm kind of flashing on uh, a case years ago that I worked with and um, it was, I was working with the reunification between a, a father and uh, a, a young child. And, and I realized very early on in this very difficult reunion because there was a lot of parental alienation going on that I had to get them out of the office and I had to get them you know in an outdoor type of environment so the child could have more breathing room and more space and feel safe to to be able to you know put as much distance between her and her father as possible and I have to say this dad did a, a really wonderful job of, of just being really understanding and patient but over time as I worked with this case the the outdoor setting of a park and you know just being able to help bring that relationship back back together again I, I just felt like was part of the healing process to be out in nature so parents during this time and I know a lot of people are turning towards nature during this time of, of COVID and recognizing and appreciating nature a little bit more. But we can help support the parents that we're working with to find ways that we can get them out and give them tasks, you know, of like, you know, maybe doing a scavenger hunt for the child. You know, the parent can go out and say, let's do a scavenger hunt and, you know, our at the park or let's find something the rainbow walk you know let's find something green let's find something blue let's find something yellow and but that can absolutely shift the energy so if there's stress happening in the moment and the parent's not quite sure how to you know help the the child you know what let's get out and maybe even sitting down in the grass you know, touching the grass, touching the nature is, is, you know, so sensory oriented and listening to maybe some birds and helping the child tune into that. And by the time they're, you're done with that, that they come back into the home, maybe there will be more willing to be cooperative about, okay, now I can pick up my toys as mom is asking, or now I, I feel ready now to sit down and you know, after this break from, you know, being at the computer and, you know, now I'm ready to go back and do some more schoolwork or something like that. Yeah, that's a, mm-hmm. a beautiful example. And I appreciate you sharing that. I'm thinking too about, of course, people who live in more urban areas, some some cities have a lot of designated green space and some don't. But would you say that for families who live in a place where maybe they don't have access to getting to a park, just walking outside in nature with the fresh air is is still beneficial or should people in that situation try to get to a certain setting? Yeah, I mean, I'm very aware of that, you know, that there are some places where people live where they don't have as much access to what you call green spaces. And 
but there are ways that we can bring nature into the home. And even if we can, the parent can buy some plants. I know for me, I go to the grocery store and I, I know sometimes they have some herbs mm. <laughs> for, for sale. So I'll just like, you know what, let me just pick up some basil and, you know, just, and so even having that in the house where we can, you know, just take that leaf and put it in our hand and then maybe we can take the, the leaf and, you know, the, like I'm just saying for basil, you know, and smell it. So we have some touch of the earth, even, you know, I'd like to have, you know, stones or, you know, or, you know, we can pick up stones or, you know, of course, for me, I have a lot of, uh, I'm a collector of gems and minerals, and I have a lot of different species of those, but I use them therapeutically with children in the, the office and, you know, the metaphor of the, the stones and things like that. And I talk about that in, in the book. But I think also if we can get outside, even on the balcony, and breathe in the fresh air or breathe in the air. And I, you know, of course, as I say that, I'm very aware now that with the fires happening in, mm -hmm. um, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, and, and I know uh, that the air quality is very poor and they're not able to, to get outside. So uh, um, if they're able to have any type of, again, going back to the plants, or animals and you know some a lot of families do have cats or they have dogs and they're so if we can have a pet for for a child even if it's a fish <laughs> it's so valuable for for children to have some type of access to to pets while while growing up you know just to be able to look in the fish tank or to be able to to go to their their cat and pick it up or to pet their dog i mean it's so helpful to for children during this time mm -hmm. I had a child that was telling me that they could tell all their secrets to their doggy. Yeah. So that, yeah. So how do you, when you're feeling upset, how do you help yourself? Well, I tell my dog all my problems like <laughs> you do. And I said, and, and does that help you? How does that help? You? Oh, that does help me. And he doesn't tell anybody. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> That's the, you know, you're reminding me, I don't work with children now, but you're reminding me how wonderful it is to do therapy with children, just their fresh perspective on things and the way that they speak so earnestly and, you know, just so genuinely is it's sweet. It's just so wonderful. It just makes me feel so loving towards them, you know, motherly. <laughs> Well, you know what? That is the truth. That what I love about children is they're so real. Yes. And I think that's what, you know, draws me to this work. And the other thing that drew me to this work is I realized when going to school and, you know, all the theories that we're learning that we we as adults can become very, very serious. Yeah. And so children kind of remind us and they help us to remember what it is that is our resilience that's part of our resilience and that goes back to play and this is you know what I've spent a majority of my life focusing on is the power of play to heal and so I always felt that you know children you know working in the office you know becoming a you know being a play therapist a lot of the training as a play therapist came from the children 
Mm, yes. <laughs> and one of the examples I, I give is when I was first starting out to be a play therapist, and this was back in the late 1980s. And back then, we didn't really have all the training. Oh, my goodness, we have so much training now that we can, you know, many different options. So I felt like I was having to learn how to be a play therapist, you know, at the, by the seat of my pants. Yeah. But there was one little boy I was working with, and he had, you know, I had some play materials out on the floor, and there were these little army figures. And so he had the army figure, and he gave one to me. And so I guess there was a battle going on. And his figure shot my figure. And so he said, I shot you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, so you're dead. And I'm like, oh, goodness me. <laughs> I'm dead. So I take my figure and I put it down on the on the floor and my figure is dead. And of course, then I got very quiet and I just allowed my body to kind of sink and be, you know, kind of you know, in a kind of a quiet state of being dead. And so finally, you know, then he went on, he was playing and playing and he's kind of watching me. And they finally said, okay, you're not dead anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, so what I learned was when you're working with children is your, your character, you know, if the child tells you that you're dead, you're dead until the child tells you that you're not dead. So that was my first one-on-one lesson of play therapy. And oh. I had a, a lot more to, to, to go. So my children have really helped to um, help me master this topic of play. Well, and, and what you mentioned about adults can be so serious. I think that really sort of resonated for me because I can remember when I was, before I became a therapist, I remember when someone suggested to me coloring for stress relief. And this was, you know, before the adult coloring books came out. And um, I, I just remember having like a, almost like a revulsion, like coloring. <laughs> I'm 32 years old. I don't color, you know, and just like, that's for kids, you know, that it was like an immediate, like, no way kind of reaction. And of course, something to be very curious about and <laughs> was definitely something that helped me understand more about myself as I explored why I had that big reaction. But, you know, as adults, we don't, we don't really play. We do things like we do activities for, we may play sports, but it's competitive, you know, so it's not just like free play, you know, it may be fun and it, I'm not saying it doesn't count, but it's like the way we typically play is like a means to an end. And when the way kids play is just to play. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And at the same time, they, they know that we forget, okay, is that play is intrinsically healing. Mm. It truly, truly is. And it reminds me, I had this uh, little girl and the mother, actually the mother told me that she said, I told my daughter that my mother, her grandmother had died. And she said the reaction that she had is she just looked at me. She was really quiet. And then she said, well, I think I need to go play now. Mm. So 
this child knew in that moment of what she needed to do to help herself feel better in, in that moment. So that really is a lot of the theme of my book, you know, healing child and trauma, uh, family trauma through expressive and play therapy. So some of the chapters in the book focus on working with parents and families together with their children. And so part of what I'm doing in that session is trying to help that parent to go back and feel comfortable with being a play participant with with their child. And so a lot of what I'm doing is modeling a sense of, you know, what I call maybe just letting, letting myself be open in the moment to model to that parent uh, an okayness to play again and to be open to the play and to be willing to listen to their child's play because children's play is so luscious. So in this time of, of COVID that we're, we're going through, another healing method and way that we can support parents to help their children through this time is to support them by suggesting ways that they can play with their children. Or if they have a session with the, the parent and the child together, a lot of therapists now are, are taking their work to online, to doing telehealth sessions. And so a lot of what is helpful, especially with the younger children, because telehealth with younger children can be challenging because mm -hmm. their attention span is, I mean, they just don't have a long attention span. So it's best to have that parent present when they're working, especially with the, the younger children. As the children get older or, you know, especially with teenagers, it's, you know, obviously different that you know, they are able to connect and, and do the telehealth a little bit easier. But with the younger children, I always recommend it's, it's better to, to have the, the parent and child together or maybe a short little moment, you know, 15 minutes or something with the child and then have the, the parent present. It all depends on, on the child. But part of what we're doing is maybe promoting some play therapy type of intervention with that parent and child. And then giving homework for that, giving some homework that they can do this together, you know, during the, the, the their day, you know, after work or after school or, you know, in the evening or in the morning, whenever they have time. And sometimes we help to ground that, you know, when was a good time for you guys to do this together? I have a my storytelling technique, uh, it's called first play kinesthetic storytelling. It's a, a model for older children, like three years and above. And this is where I guide parents to help to uh, tell stories to children and we create stories together. Um, but then those stories are told on the child's back. So I call it, it's a kinesthetic. It's adding the touch piece to therapeutic storytelling. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. But what we're doing is, is we know that uh, touch, how important touch is to helping that child to regulate. So uh, creating a method where we have therapeutic storytelling in connection to providing touch 
is just kind of, you know, it's like we know therapeutic storytelling is good. We know that that touch is good. But then taking those two, I call it the, the Reese's peanut butter cup phenomenon, <laughs> you know, taking those and kind of putting those two therapeutic techniques together. But who does the touching? And so we take we in this model, we assign the parent to be the therapeutic person, the change agent, so to speak empower the parent to provide that because you know especially beyond telehealth we have sessions together there's always concern about the therapist touching children and the liability of that mm-hmm. and i've done some research in the the area and i have some publications related to to touch but you know i i actually surveyed a, a large group of, of practitioners and of course that was always the concern that maybe touch could be the child would misconstrue it. And then, you know, that we, you know, we work really hard for all our credentials and it would be very upsetting for a child to say that the therapist touched the child inappropriately when we know that that never happened. So if we know that touch is important, then who can provide that touch? So we have the, the parent do it and we guide them. And I use a stuffed animal and, you know, I teach my practitioners to do that. I have a a training that I offer. So they guide them on a stuffed animal while the parent does the motions with, with the child. But anyway, what I'm saying is, you know, during this time, that would be, for an example, one thing that parents can do with the children beyond just a session. That could be like a homework and say, oh, when can you have like a, a storytelling time together? When would that be? When would you be able to do that? So you have to ground it for parents, you know. You can't just say, okay, now do this. So you have to say, let's, let's think of when the best time would be. And, you know, in the morning, at night. And so that gives it a higher percentage chance that it's going to do to really happen. And we have to ask that of our parents, too, when we're working with them to make that commitment that they're going to put into action some of the the techniques and interventions that we're teaching them, you know, can put that into action when we're not uh, with them, because we might be only with them like one hour a week or every other week or something like that. So all the real work happens outside of the sessions with parents and children. Hey, everybody. I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my experience with Sunset Lake CBD. I first tried CBD when my integrative doctor recommended it for chronic neck pain and tension that tends to wake me up at night. I really like Sunset Lake CBD's products. The full-spectrum CBD tincture is mild-tasting compared to others I've tried, and I find it works quickly. It doesn't feel sedating, but it does have a pleasant calming effect. And I also like the CBD gummies. They taste good, and they work well. So if you're looking for a craft CBD product that comes directly from a farm outside Burlington, Vermont, that's a producer for Ben & Jerry's ice cream, you're going to want to check out Sunset Lake CBD. And remember, Therapy Chat listeners get 20% off using the promo code CHAT. So go to sunsetlakecbd.com and use the promo code CHAT. Yes, so much true. Because like you said, one hour per week, you know, the rest of the hours, we're not with them. (laughs) And I'm really glad that you started talking about the kinesthetic storytelling. I'd love to sort of shift gears a little bit and talk more about your work with 
zero to three children in that age group and, and your first play therapy method. And because as I was saying to you before we started recording, I just don't think that there is a lot out there about ways to work with infants and toddlers who have mental health challenges that they're, they're faced with. And in in our culture, we tend to just think they don't know what's going on. They don't remember. So they're not impacted when something traumatic happens. Well, absolutely. And this is one of my areas of expertise is the infant mental health and infant play therapy uh, modality. And I also just had a, a book that came out in April of this of this year uh, called Infant Play Therapy, Foundations, Models, Programs, and Practice. And I also have a, a chapter on uh, first play, infant play therapy in the Healing Child and, and Family Trauma book. But you're right that what, see, what we know about working with children, especially in the area of play therapy, is a lot of the focus over the years. Traditionally, we've worked with children and been trained to work with children ages three to four and above, Mm -hmm. which left a huge gap of, okay, so what about the zero to three populations? And a lot of what we know now is that there is always this myth that because maybe a young child didn't recall or remember a trauma that they might have had as an infant, then since they didn't remember it, then they're okay. Well, we do know now, and and I credit the amazing neuroscientists out there, what I call all the really smart people, Bruce Perry, Daniel Siegel, Vander Kolk, Alan Shore, mm-hmm. uh, all these really amazing people who now research the neuroscience has come to be, you know, come to the forefront in the past, like, say, 20, 30 years to really let us know that peering into the window, you know, of the mind and the brain, that yes, that that brain really is wiring up in those early years. And the the neurons, the synapses are firing and if they and they're experience dependent. So if they, you know, it's like the neurons that fire together, wire together and, and those that don't die together. And so it, going back to that, it's experience dependent. Can you explain so, that that phrase experience dependent just yes, to make sure everybody's with you? Right. So it's it's relational. It's what that infant has gone through, their life experiences, what has get, been given to them and what hasn't been given to them during those early for that first year of life, the the first the second year of life. And so they, you know, because the brain is just amazingly just growing. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's coming together. It's, as Alan Shore explains, it is wiring and then, you know, it, then it dies and then it kind of comes back. And it's based upon what life experiences that the children are and infants are experiencing during that time. So who are the caregivers in that child's life? And what type of caregiving are they receiving? So do we have attuned caregivers? Do we have as that child has caregivers that attend to the needs? 
I was able to spend time, my husband and I, with the, the Bowlbys a few years back, uh, mm. Sir Richard Bowlby. And we were invited to their home in, in England, which I was very, very honored about that. And so, but Richard talks about, and he's the son of John Bowlby, and he always talks about this. Uh, he asks this question to his audience. And of course, I've learned it from him and I do, I provide it in my trainings to the practitioners that I'm, I'm training. But he says, what are the, the two most important things that help to build a secure attachment relationship between that parent and the infant? So think about that for yourself, Laura. I'm going to ask you that question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are the two factors that help to build a secure attachment relationship for an infant? They'll put you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> and we'll, well ask yeah. the listeners to think too. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the answer should be, but I'm going to guess that attunement would be one of the main factors and the presence of a secure caregiver, you know, safe, a safe, secure presence of the caregiver. That's, those are the two things that I come up with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it's like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so the way that I've learned it is the first one is how sensitive that parent is in helping to relieve the distress of that child. So if the child is in distress, how sensitive is that parent to help to lower the stress in the child? So what is the distress? The distress would be, um, are they hungry? Are they cold? Are they afraid? Are they, are they sick? You know, so these are some of the areas that we look for. What do we mean by distress? Not did the parent take the cookie away from the child or say, no, you can't have that cookie now. That's a different type of distress. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's, that is the first one. And the other one is, and this is where, when I heard this, I like fell over in my chair because I was like, are you kidding me? This helps to build a secure attachment. But when you think about it, it, it's really the truth. And that is how much does the parent or the caregiver and the child experience joy within the relationship? Mm. So it's the joy within the relationship helps to build secure attachment relationships. And so that's really, for, for me, the, the crux of what the, the work is in a foundational work in the first play therapy, where we're helping to facilitate joyful experiences between that parent and infant, or maybe that parent and the child. So we're focusing on the strengths in the relationship. We're focusing on the resiliency in the relationship. But going back to the joy, if you think for yourself, and if you have relationships and, you know, your life, you know, a partner, what made you decide that, you know, maybe you had a, a date together, but what made you decide that you wanted to have a second date with that person? <laughs> 
So, or if you have a, a group of, you know, friends, you know, girlfriends or, you know, guy friends that get together and you go out for lunch together, which I can't wait to do, by the way, after all this COVID's over. <laughs> See friends. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but when, you know, when you're done with that lunch, what do you usually say? You know, let's say you have a, you're out with a group of, of girlfriends. And what do you say? Say, oh, let's do this again. Mm-hmm. Let's get together again. When can we do this? again. Well, that all goes back to that parent-infant relationship and what we call the reciprocal serve and return of the relationship is where, you know, the parent initiates something to the child and then the child might coo back to the parent or they smile back to the parent or they use that wonderful body language to say, yes, I love this. Do this again. That they are doing every single signaling to that parent that I enjoy this. I really, really like this. Let's do this again. And so it's a a reciprocal co-regulated relationship that then begins to happen. It's a beautiful, beautiful relationship. So in my first play infant play therapy model, what we're doing is to help to facilitate the joy within the relationship and how do we do it? We provide, we do it through teaching parents how to provide touch, touch techniques to their infant. At the same time, they're also learning a therapeutic story and it's a manualized program. So the, the story is called the baby tree hug. So we pretend that the baby's a beautiful tree. And so we teach the parent how to guide them to touch the, you know, the legs, the, the limbs of the, the legs or the limbs and the feet or the roots and the hands or the leaves. And so then we're encouraging the eye contact, you know, that's happening but between that parent and, and child and also being attuned to how that child is responding to the touch. So we teach the parent prior to beginning the story massage, how to ask permission from their infant, how to respect, respect them. And that, that begins in infancy. And then we take that all the way up through childhood, always respecting that child and that the child recognizes I have boundaries. I have boundaries that need to be respected. And so I, I have one of my practitioners told me that she was, had a, um, uh, grandparents that had custody of, of their, their grandchild. And the, the child was like about about two years old. And so she did the first play uh, therapy model with, with the grandparents. And so the the, the parents taught the, the child, the, the baby, or she's two, how to, that we have to ask permission first. And so the practitioner came back and she said, the grandfather said, well, you've ruined it for me. Now she's asking me that I have to ask permission for everything. (laughs) (laughs) But he said it in a way that was, I'm happy about this because I'm feeling good that she knows that she's developing boundaries and that she has boundaries and that she has her, that her body belongs to her. And that so many family systems where that's not taught and the, the boundaries of body are so violently, you know, violated. Yeah. And so it's huge, huge work that I feel like I'm bringing to the, the table here, you know, because 
you know, we, we crave touch, we need touch, but how do we give it? And that also reminds me, I have a, a friend and um, she's in England and her name is Jean Barlow, wonderful woman. I love her to death, but she has a program called, uh, called child to child massage in the schools. And she's actually taken it all over the world, but they provide, they actually have teach the children but they start them in like preschool how to provide uh, touch to children in the the classroom but they do it through like massage on the back and they children always have to ask permission of each other before they can you know have that time and so I, I have a, a girlfriend who's a school counselor and she says Janet it's so beautiful to and she's in in the UK and she said, so beautiful to pass, the, go, you know, after lunch, they usually do the period of massage in the classrooms. And she'll go and I'll walk by the, the classrooms and I see the room lights are dimmed and that the children, they have some light music going on and the children are providing this time to, you know, to each other. So I use that model as a foundation for the, the kinesthetic storytelling uh, for one of the, the found, you know, one of the roots of what I use for the, the kinesthetic storytelling, but it's pretty amazing what they're, they're doing in the, in Europe and in, in different places with the, the children in the classroom. And I have a, another book that I'll mention here. It's called touch and child counseling and play therapy an ethical and clinical guide. And that there is a chapter in the book that's related to that school program that I just, I just mentioned and I just talked about. Yes. And that, you know, for all of you who are internally recoiling at the idea of touch and therapy, even though this isn't about the therapist doing the touching, it sounds like that book would be able to help everybody settle down and understand a little better how it can how it can help. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's a powerful book and, you know, it looks at touch from all different angles for, you know, children that have been sexually abused and, you know, therapeutic models that use touch as an intervention, which mine, you know, I, for the kinesthetic storytelling, it, it is a, a therapeutic touch model, but again, we're not providing that we're, we're using the parents as, as doing that, but it is a sensitive topic. And again, I write about that touch, you know, the area of touch and the Heal a Child and Family Trauma booked as well. That's wonderful. And, uh, you know, I, when you were talking about the baby as a tree, I forgot exactly what <laughs> you called it, but that, that um, intervention that the parent can do with the child, I just had this like thought that the first thought was a sense of delight like the, the parent and the child are experiencing delight within their relationship together. Oh, that's such a beautiful word. I, yeah. I, I love that word. And that's exactly what we're facilitating because we know when we provide that touch and we, we get the, the hormones are, are being released in the body, those positive hormones, the serotonin, the, the dopamine, the you know, oxytocin, that those high levels of joy are, I, I know in that moment, the child's brain is wiring up mm -hmm. for healthy neuropathways. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And you know how, I mean, I know we, most of us probably have heard before about the, the studies where the um, infants and young children who 
were so severely neglected in orphanages in countries like Romania. And they did the brain scans and found that the, you know, the areas of the brain that experienced joy and pleasure were smaller. I hope I'm remembering that accurately. So if you know that I'm talking, that I'm missing it, please tell me. But just thinking about how like, you know, you want to be able to have the experience of joy as uh, one of those neural pathways that's like the super highway, not the little dirt road, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way to, to, to put it. But yes, I mean, that's, it's, it, you know, that's a very sad thing that has, that we understand that happened in some of those orphanages. And yes, I'm, I'm aware of those brain scans and, you know, in the areas of the social and emotional development in the brain that they absolutely were like, you know, black, you know, blank, there's no activity happening within, yeah. within that part of the brain. But, you know, it, and it's not easy, but it can be done. So what I want to bring here is some hope. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the mentor that I worked with. And she this she got me on all on this touch topic because she wrote a book called the, the Dialogue of Touch. And when I first met her back in the early 90s, I attended a, a workshop with her. And she was talking about a play therapy model that worked with children not using toys but using the relationship. And back then with developmental play therapy, which was her model, the practitioner would do the, the, the developmental games with the children directly. And as I was sitting in this workshop, I raised my hand and I said, I said, Dr. Brody, I said, what about the concerns of practitioners touching children? And of course, she had been, you know, she was in her 80s at this time. So back in the day, the concerns about practitioners touching children or teachers, it wasn't so highlighted for us until like around the 1980s when all those high profile cases came into being. And then everybody as a society went, oh, what? You mean, you know, we put these people in trusted positions. But anyway, so her response back then was like, oh, I've never had a problem with that. And so I, I have to say, I, you always have to be careful what you ask, because I actually ended up answering that question. And what I realized later is like, oh, it's the ethics. It's the ethics of touch. So going back to those children, you know, in Romania or, you know, or orphanages is the lack of touch. And that yes. we know that touch and attachment go hand in hand, literally. You can't talk about with touch without talking about attachment and attachment without talking about touch. They, they absolutely go hand in hand together. And this goes back to the sad sadness that we're aware of is that some infants are, you know, abused and some infants don't get that the experience of someone giving them nurturing, loving touch. But the hope is, and this is where I want to come back to, and I know I'm coming full circle now, that the hope is, this is what Viola Brody would say, is that for, especially the younger you can get to them, the better. If a child did not get good experiences in those early years, that it's not too late. If we can have a good, caring, 
caretaker, a, a foster parent, who can then be taught how to have that child pick up what they missed, teach them how to go back and give that child what, and I call it first play because it's the first type of play that we have in, in life, that play between, that luscious play between a, a parent and an infant where there's that joy within the relationship. So if we could teach that parent or the caregiver how to give those experiences to that infant or to that child, they can actually pick up what they missed. And this goes back to the neuroplasticity of the brain. The brain can change. So I had a, a, a situation one time where I, I had a mom, she adopted a, a, a child from uh, China. And so she, so at four years old, and she got the child when the child was about 12 months to 18 months, I think the child was about 18 months old, when she finally was able to bring the, the baby home. And so then she came to me and the child was now four years old and was having night terrors and, you know, a lot of behavioral problems. And so I said to the mom, I said, well, when you brought her home, I said, how did you, how did you interact with her? You know, you know, what did you do with her? And she goes, well, I I just treated her like a, a regular 18 month old child. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, did you sing to her? Did you rock her? Did you play, you know, developmental games you know, like peekaboo? Or And she looked at me and she said, no. And, I, and then I explained to her a little bit of the theory and how, you know, children can, can pick up, you know, what they miss. And, you know, if they miss those developmental, act, those developmental experiences, um, that, you know, what can, what can happen? And then I said, I looked at her and I said, well, guess what? And she said, what? And I said, it's not too late. <laughs> and then she but she looked at me, though, she was really stunned. And she, her mouth just kind of dropped. And she said, you know what, I wish somebody had said this to me, had told this to me, when I brought her home when she was 18 months old. So anyway, I gave the hope and, and she was willing, you know, that's the other thing, you know, with when we're going to go back and do the work of the developmental trauma and, and, and do the healing work with it. You have to have the available caretaker that's willing to put in the, the work to do it. So that goes back to the commitment of, okay, I'm going to teach you this, these ways and we can practice in the office together and I can guide you. And, and, but then when you go home, you have to commit to at least, you know, 15 minutes, two times a day, 15 minutes. And I say like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and, you know, just to make it like something reasonable, because if they feel like, oh, I have to do the, the whole, you know, story, you know, massage with them, or if I have to, you know, if it seems like a long time, then they say, oh, I don't have time to do it. If you say, oh, if you just do five minutes, if you do one minute, then hopefully when they start practicing and getting together, then they're, it feels good and joyful, and then they'll continue. <laughs> so I just, I just offer it in bite, size, bite sizes, but we need for them to make that commitment. So it's okay to ask our families to do that. I mean, they're coming to you, they're paying, their insurance is paying to see you, or they're paying out of pocket to see you, however, you know, you're being reimbursed. So we have to say, okay, it's not going to just happen, the magic just with me here, one hour a week, or every other week, you have to also be a partner 
in this with me as a parent to, you know, provide the, the interventions that I'm asking you to do or, you know, give it, give it a good try. And if that one doesn't work, let's try another one. I, as I hear you talking about that, I, I think about a question that, you know, it may be a little, a little off. I don't know. It's not quite off topic, but it's, it's like, I think for many parents, well, let me just say this. I tend to work with families. If I'm working with a child, which I don't do now, but I have in the past, you know, oftentimes where the attachment wounds are for the parent and where the parent's trauma comes into the relationship is, is where it interferes with the child and parent relationship, it seems. So when you said, you know, the parent has to be willing, I'm wondering if you have any suggestions, guidance for therapists who are working with families in this way where how the parent can help, how the therapist can help the parent get bought in. Because, you know, I think if they have their own trauma or their own attachment wounds, it can be, it could feel too vulnerable somehow. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that goes back to starting with the, we have to start with the parents first and so we have to understand uh, their, especially when we're looking at the first play model, but you know, we have to understand their touch experiences in life, and we need to understand their attachment experiences. And because, again, this goes back to they can only give what, that, what they've received. Yeah. So if, you know, especially when we're in session together, and this is where we can lose out on, you know, having to do things telehealth. I mean, there's limitations to the, the telehealth process, but we can do our best to, to work with, with parents in that way. So sometimes we need to have sessions that are separate from the child because now we're working with the parent with their own inner wound of their, their inner child wounds that, that need to be addressed. And sometimes as a, a, a therapist, working with children, we always have to kind of make the distinction of boundaries and where am I going to be the therapist for the child? And where might I need to refer this parent to someone like you, (laughs) you know, to maybe work on some of the areas that we've identified in the sessions. So I can, you know, take it so far with them, but sometimes I would do that. I would have, you know, say, you know what, you know, maybe it would be good for you to see Laura (laughs) and Laura can maybe kind of dig deeper with you with this. And, And then it kind of helps to keep that hat, you know, for like, I'm the child's therapist, I could be the family play therapist. But now once we get into the, you know, now am I going to be the couples therapist? You see what I mean? Yeah. And then, then it starts getting really, especially if they decide that maybe this, they, this couple is deciding they don't want to be together anymore. And then, oh, my goodness. And like, <laughs> then, then, you know, I call the, the ther- child therapist, I'm the neutral in the in the relationship, but then, you know, it can get very, very, very uh, out of control very, very quickly. So I've learned over time, it's better to have different people that can, you know, different therapists that we can refer to that can then handle the different areas that may emerge. But then again, on the other hand, if it's like a parent who has been, has some wounds and maybe they were abused as a, as a child, 
And so now I'm teaching them to provide touch with their child. So maybe I, if it, again, this goes back to if I'm in session with them, I might say, can I show you on your arm that, you know, what I mean by this type of movement, this type of touch with your infant? Is that okay with you if I do that? And so then I can touch them, you know, if the parent is agreeable with that, and I can show them on their arm how to how to do that. Or if it's a backstory, I say, you would, can I, are you okay if I show you on your back and do this with you? So the parent can feel it. And then so they feel it, then they know what that infant is experiencing, or they know what the, that the child is experiencing. But then I might have exercises that of connection that I might do with the parent. Mm. Like, you know, in my training, I, I do like a holding hand exercise, you know, have practitioners hold hand with each other and one's the giver, one's the receiver. But that's really relevant. That's a powerful tool to, to use with a parent or a teenager. I've used it with teenagers in the office where, you know, we just maybe hold hands for a few minutes before we start the session just to connect, depending on the, the presenting problem, depending on the, the issue that the you know because it might not be obviously you know relevant for all the children that we're working with and then it's also that the mediating factors if that was a teenage boy I might not feel comfortable doing with that with them versus maybe a teenage girl I might feel comfortable you know so we always have to look all the different mediating factors involved and that type of touch and then you have to use your clinical judgment for it thank you that's that's awesome and We've been talking a long time and I'm still eager to learn so much more, but for now, can you kind of finish up by telling our listeners a little bit more about your, your training program and, and where they can get more information about that and your books and anything else that you're doing? Okay. Well, thank you so much. Well, I do have a website and it's www.firstplaytherapy.com. And you can go there and learn a little bit more about the infant model and then also the, the model for the older children. I have an online course for the First Play Kinesthetic Storytelling course, and it is a, a self-paced course. It's intensive. It's like 35 hours of recorded training. Wow. And, um, and at the same time, because it leads to a certification and then they, once you, it's like three different levels. And once you go through level one, then you contact me and then we, you know, we set up a, a supervision or a consultation time together. And then there's level two, and then we have group, and then I have group ongoing group sessions that, that I offer with that. And the first play infant model program, I have normally always told myself that I would always be in person. Mm. <laughs> And because of COVID, I just did my first group online in July, and I was so surprised how successful it was because what happens is, is we have a live lab. And in that live lab, we actually have real parents and their infants come to the training. And in this case, the parents came on Zoom and the practitioners that were going through the training, they learned the, the manual and they implement that manual in real time with the, the parent and infant together. Well, I've never done this in any other way other than live training where the parent and infant actually come to the training. And it's, it's to me, it's like party time. It's like I, I always get so excited when the babies come. 
and, and the parents. And it's so magical. It's such a magical experience. And each practitioner is paired with their own parent-infant diet. Well, again, I just did this online and it worked out really well. And the parents gave very good feedback on how they virtually, they said that, you know, doing it virtually really worked out well for them. So the next training coming up is in November uh, for the first plate infant model. And again, that's going to be online. Now that training is 45 hours and we're, yeah, it's a, it's very intensive. And then beyond that, uh, and that's for the a certification, then there's some, you know, they have to implement what they learned in real time beyond the, the training to, for the requirements for the certification. Well, it sounds amazing. And is it a CEU training for the certification? Yeah, I and I, as a play therapist, I'm a provider through the Association for Play Therapy. Uh, some people are, you know, you have to have so many hours to become a registered play therapist or registered play therapy supervisor. So some people are working towards their hours and they gain that in, in that way. And I also am a provider through the, the state of Florida for, for CEUs EUs as well. But anyway, beyond that, uh, the the Healing Child and Family Trauma through Expressive and Play Therapies book that that is um, online. If you go to Norton Publishing, I know that they have a a webpage there for for the book. And then also uh, it's on uh, Amazon. And then um, my other two books are also on Amazon, that the Infant Play Therapy book and the, the Touch and Child Counseling and Play Therapy book as well. Fabulous. I am so grateful that you took the time to come and talk to us on Therapy Chat today. This was a really fascinating conversation and I really enjoyed it. Janet, thank you so much. Laura, thank you so much for the invitation. And you are a wonderful host. You really are. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you to Sunset Lake CBD for sponsoring this week's episode. Use promo code chat for 20% off your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer owned small business that shifts craft CBD products directly from their farm outside of Burlington, Vermont to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has something for everyone. They offer tinctures, edibles, salves, and coffee designed to help with sleep, stress, and sore muscles. Sunset Lake CBD customers support regenerative agriculture that preserves the health of the land and creates meaningful employment in the community. Farm workers are paid a living wage and employees own the majority of the company. Remember, use promo code CHAT to get 20% off your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com. And for more information and resources on trauma and healing from trauma, go to www.traumatherapistnetwork.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a community for therapists and a place for anyone to go to learn more about trauma and find resources and connect with help www.traumatherapistnetwork.com. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, 
Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.